I don't know how many of you guys have read the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, but um, in that book, there's a really brilliant exercise for determining what it is that you actually have as your definition for success. And so Covey, Stephen Covey, who wrote the book, comes to us and says, listen, you may think you know what your definition of success is, but let me see. Let's try it out. So he says, imagine that you're in your car, you're all dressed up in your Sunday best, and you are driving to a funeral. You have no idea whose funeral it is. You just know that that's, in fact, where you're going. And you come tooling into the parking lot of the church, and you realize, hey, you know what? It's my church. So immediately you race to get your space because it's yours. So you race across the parking lot. Lo and behold, your space is open. You park in your space because we're all creatures of habit. Now you're thinking about your seat, aren't you? And so you get out of the car. You make your way through the parking lot. You walk into the front door of the church, and you realize there's kind of a line there, you know, forming around the guest book in the foyer area. And so you dutifully stand in line, stressing out over whether or not you'll get your seat. And you look around, and you're looking at all these different people who are waiting to sign the book with you. And you realize, my goodness, I know pretty much all of these folks. So you wait, you wait, you sign the book, you begin to make your way to your seat, you grab a bulletin, you know, from the usher on your way to get your seat, your seat is open, you sit down, the world and your universe is great until you look at the program and you realize that you just sat down to attend your own funeral. So now Covey says, stop, get out a pad of paper and write down two things. Number one, Who do you want to speak at your funeral? Who's going to deliver the various eulogies regarding your life? And number two, write down exactly what you want each one of those people to say, and then understand that that's your definition of success. And then here's the challenge. It is to begin to live today in such a way as to make that vision of your ending a reality. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's a fascinating exercise. As I thought about that today, I thought, you know, death, at least in that incredibly narrow sense, is somewhat of a gift to us while we are yet alive. And why I say that is this. It forces us to acknowledge something that is absolutely true for every single one of us. It forces us to acknowledge, guys, the inevitability of our own end in this life, in this world. And as a result, if we're wise enough to do that, well, then it brings clarity, does it not, to the limited number of days that we have left? Because here's one of the realities of life. One of the realities of life is that none of us here today, at least in these bodies, is going to live forever. And in fact, I'm going to go farther than that and say that one of the realities of life is that none of us here today, at least in these bodies, and I don't care what age you are, is going to live for very long. The Bible comes to us and talks to us about every different topic, and and not subtly. I, I like that. I appreciate direct. It comes and talks about this topic of longevity of life, too, and it says, hey, let me help you. I'll give you some images. See if this will help you to understand how long your life well isn't. So then, for example, it comes and says, you know what? Your life is like a vapor. It's like a mist. So you wake up in the morning and you see the fog, you know, and it's like a light fog and it's spread over the streets. You go, ooh, look at all the fog. And like 10 o'clock in the morning, the sun has come up and it's burned it off and it's gone. There's your life. Not descriptive enough? How about the blink of an eye? That's another one. How long is that? I just blinked three times. You didn't even notice. Blink, blink, blink. Gone, gone, gone. Gone again, gone again, gone again, gone again, gone again. It's kind of irritating, isn't it? Gone, 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 gone. We're clearing the place out. Gone. That's it. You're all gone. I'm gone. 
unbelievably short. How about the grass of the field? It talks about that too. Now, we don't get that quite as readily here in South Florida, but see, in Israel, it's different. It's a dry land. So when it rains during the rainy season, man, everything goes green, everything is lush, everything is beautiful, and all the flowers come up out of the ground, and the bees are buzzing, and all of that stuff. And then here's how they experience this. Something called the Shirako, a scorching east wind comes, and literally, in one day, dries everything out. Everything goes brown, everything dies. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's like the grass of the field. And one of the realities of life that I think it would be wise for us to embrace and learn from is that none of us are going to live forever in these bodies. And in fact, we're not really going to be around for very long. And every one of our attempts to ignore that and every one of our attempts to minimize that and every one of our attempts to pretend like that isn't actually true is an attempt by us to be something other than what we really are, which is human. To be human is, in the end, at least physically, and in this life, to die. Death does not terminate our humanity so much as it proves it. And so, as Eugene Peterson says, and this too is brilliant, He says, learning how to live necessarily involves a good deal of meditation on and consideration of death. It brings clarity. It brings focus to the limited number of days that we actually have. So here's why I'm saying all this. Because today as we come to the very end of this series that we've been in since the second Sunday of January, we come today as well to the end of the life of David, and I have to believe that it is a death that David, okay, had he done Stephen Covey's exercise and had he had the opportunity to kind of author the way that it would go, he would have done it very differently. If you've done your personal worship for this week, if you have worked through this passage five days in advance of today... All right, then you know, for example, that David's servants here at the end of his life treat David more as a problem than they do as a person. They're not concerned so much with David as a person as they are with propping up somehow David's failing power and somehow helping David maintain his position. And I say that because age and infirmity have come along, and at this point in David's life, he's in his last days, guys. They have, it has robbed him, and I know this is awkward, of his sexual potency. Now, why is that even worth my mentioning? Because to the mind of the ancient Near Eastern person, the sexual potency of a king was tied to the leadership potency of a king. So to lose one in their minds was to lose the other. And instead of simply accepting the fact that David is dying, I mean, he's in his final days. He doesn't care about that. He's not interested in that. He's lost that together with so many other things as he's sliding into the grave here, if you will, and then ministering to this man who is in need as though they care about him. Do you know what his servants do? And imagine the humiliation of this. They basically run a nationwide beauty pageant. They go out and search the nation for the most beautiful young virgin, and then they bring her to David, hoping that she will inspire some further, you know, potency on his part, or at least hoping to make the king, whose impotency they've published to the entire land, look like he's still interested in that. And here's the deal. She doesn't, and he's not interested in that. It's really pretty sad. Then you have David's son, Adonijah, who again, if you've done your personal worship this week, I hope you recognized is just another Absalom. He's associated with chariots. 
He has 50 runners who run before his chariot. He's handsome and attractive and, you know, all of these things. I mean, does that not sound familiar if you've been with us in this study? Not only that, but he has co-conspirators. He has a plan, and he's been working his plan, and now that his dad is in his final days, his plan is coming to a head, guys. And what is his plan? Well, just like Absalom sought to steal David's kingdom, Adonijah too wants to steal David's kingdom, but this time not from David. David's going to die. He's about to get himself out of the way of that. He wants to steal it from Solomon, God's elect, God's choice to succeed David. Now, why do I say that? Because for all the sons that David had, there's exactly one that God came to and gave his own name to, a throne name. Significant to these people. They understand stuff like that. God came to David and Bathsheba and said, you've named him Solomon. That's a wonderful name, great name. I like the name, but I've got a name. It means beloved of the Lord. We're going to call him Jedidiah. The divine election is upon Solomon. Adonijah tries to steal that. And so then what is the diminishment and the death of his father to Adonijah? Because it certainly isn't a moment of great personal loss. It's a moment of an opportunity for great personal gain. And even Bathsheba, one of the wives of David, the mother of Solomon, is driven to the deathbed of her husband, but not out of concern for her husband, out of concern for herself. It's a legit concern. I get the concern. But nevertheless, it's not selfless. And she doesn't come saying, how can I serve you in these your last few days? She comes saying, here's how you can serve me in these your last few days. And so, you know, you get to the end of this story and you read all of this stuff and you think to yourself, my goodness, all of the swirling intrigue and politics and junk going on all around David as he's dying. And it seems to me that of all the people in this story, there's exactly one person who actually sees David's death and thus the lessons contained within it for living, clearly. And it's David himself. So for the many things that we could focus on in this story, what I want to look at are the, is the first part of David's last words to his son Solomon, and by extension, to us. There's much to learn. And I want to tell you what he doesn't say, even though it's true and it desperately needs to be said. He doesn't say, hey, guys, here's the deal. Uh, When you get to the end of your life, and you will, parenthetically, but when you get to the end of your life and, you know, it's time for your funeral, here's what the people who get up to eulogize you really ought to be able to say. They ought to be able to get up and in some way, shape, or form say, you know what? This person reminded me of Christ. Their mind, the way they thought, was really, in various ways, very much like the mind of Christ, as I find that in the Bible. Their heart, what they, what they loved, their passions, what made them angry, what made them happy, what they cared about, what they didn't care about, what they valued and didn't value. Remarkably similar to that of the Lord. Their lives, which issued forth from that heart, from that mind. Not perfectly, my goodness. But certainly, in certain ways resembled that of Jesus. And here's why they should be able to say that. Because if you're a believer in Christ, that's the goal. It just is. Like the Bible comes to you and says, ah, you know, you can write it up for your funeral if you want, but that doesn't matter. Let me give it to you. You don't belong to you. You now belong to me, and I have a goal for your life. And if you'll embrace this goal, this is the best goal and life you can ever have. 
It is be like my son, little by little, day by day. Die to yourself. Die to sin. Become less and less like the person you were when I snatched you up and embraced you in my grace. And become more and more like him. That's the Spirit's work in us. And sometimes it's two steps forward and 93 steps back. I get that. But there is a forward progression to our lives, or there should be, in terms of our conformity to the image of Christ. So David doesn't say that, but you know, here's the deal. What he does do is he drives us emphatically to the Word of God, which A, does say that, and then B, gives us the rhythm of grace that the Spirit uses in my life and in your life to make us more like Jesus. So we pick up our study today in 1 Kings 2, beginning in verse 1, where we read this. It says that when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, here we go, I am about to go the way of what? Of all the earth. What is he recognizing? He's saying, okay, in these bodies, let me just tell you, none of us live forever. There is a way of all the earth, and David is about to go that way. And so he says, with the clarity that that brings to him, let me give you some wisdom for living. He says to Solomon, be strong and show yourself a man and and keep the charge of the Lord your God. Here's what that means. Be faithful to him. Walk alongside him. Give yourself over every day to him. Grow in your likeness of him. Live for him. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. And how? Walking in his ways. Where do you find that? In God's word. And keeping his statutes, also find found in God's word, which is also where you find his commandments, and his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written where? In the law of Moses, which God has preserved for us, and the Bible, which is his word. And then David says, do all of these things so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, the idea being in the very limited number of days that each one of us has. So David's days are done. He's at the end of his life. He's seeing life far more clearly as now it expires for him. And what he drives us to is God's word. And he drives us there, for example, I think, and I could give hundreds, I'll give three, because he knows that God's word is life. It doesn't just offer life. It doesn't just bring life. That's not how it's spoken of. It is itself life. Listen to what Moses says, because David knew this, Deuteronomy 32. Beginning in verse 46, Moses said to them, to the people of God, to the people of Israel, he says, take to heart in here into the core of your being all of the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. And here's why. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. It's a word that brings life as by the power of God's Spirit and community with God's people in this rhythm of grace, taking it into our hearts day by day and then week by week and even year by year. We become more like Him. It is life to our marriage when we take that word and live that way. It's life. It doesn't bind us, it frees us. It's life to our relationships when we take in that word and in obedience to Christ and by the, empowered by His Spirit, we, we learn to live that way. It's, it's not death. It's not enslaving. It's liberating. 
It's life to our finances. It's life to our body. And it's life to our soul as we find in Jesus the Savior that we need. And not just the Savior, but the King. The one who by his wisdom shall govern over us. It transforms your life in every area of it as by this rhythm of grace, engaged in, engaged in, engaged in, day by day, week by week, and year by year, it makes you less and less and less like you and more and more and more like him, failures notwithstanding, and there will be many. His grace covers that too. So God's word is life, but then it's also wisdom. Listen to what Solomon, the one that he leaves the kingdom to, has to say in Proverbs 2, verses 6 through 8. He says, for the Lord gives wisdom. Now, you read that and you've got to stop and go, okay, but so where do I look to for wisdom? Where am I going? What's my source? He says, the Lord gives wisdom. Now, think through that for a minute. Because really and truly, in the end, he alone is capable of doing that. One of my favorite statements by Socrates is this statement, and he made it many times. He says, I only know that I know nothing. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying, I only know that I know nothing, and here's why I only know that I know nothing, because I don't know everything. And so I may think that I know something, but here's the reality. Because of my limitations as a human being, the reality is that there may be some bit of information. There might be some knowledge out there somewhere. There might be some event, some factor, some thing that I have no clue about, maybe in this life never will have any clue about, and would completely change what I think to be true, what I think I know. I only know that I know nothing. Who knows everything? The one who alone gives wisdom. I know because he tells me there is a huge value on God's word. It's a major consideration when you're thinking, okay, by what shall I live? Well, that seems like wisdom. What does he say? Solomon says, for the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. It's, it's all right there. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. And how does he do that, incidentally, just as an aside? What is he referring to here? He's saying his word in operation in your life will be the way that God at times will shield you. He's clearly referring to the written Word of God, but the Bible also teaches us elsewhere that Jesus is the living Word of God and the personification of all of its wisdom. So then when you have the Bible in your hand, whose mind is in your hand? The mind that your mind is to be transformed and to be made more and more and more like. Whose heart? Same deal. It's the heart and mind of Christ through the rhythm of grace that we're to be transformed by and into the image of. And then also, last one of several that I could give you, the Word of God brings blessing. And David knew that. It's Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, What the psalmist is doing here is he's not describing three different groups of people. He's not saying, okay, we got the wicked, you guys are over here, we've got sinners in the middle, scoffing section, three different kinds of people. He's describing one kind of person, one group of people, and here's the fundamental trait and characteristic. It is that they do not believe that a God even exists. So then there is no God, therefore then is also no word of God, no laws or standards or word that is life or wisdom or brings blessing. 
There's none of that stuff. There's no heaven or hell. There's no afterlife. There's death and then that's it. And that too brings clarity. That too creates a certain kind of living of days, does it not? It really does. There's no Jesus. There's no need for Jesus. There's no Jesus to be conformed to. I mean, maybe there's a historical Jesus. Creates a different ending. Creates a different funeral. Psalmist says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of that group. He doesn't think like that. Nor stands in the way of that group. He doesn't live like that. Nor sits in the seat of that group. He doesn't identify himself with that. But instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There is a feasting. There is a, this is life to me. I must, therefore, take it in, lest I starve. On his law, he meditates day and night, for he, now notice this description, this blessed person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its what? Its fruit in its season. All right, so like when I was a kid, my dad owned fruit groves. I don't know how many of you have ever worked in fruit groves, but I, unfortunately, uh, had the privilege of spending a lot of time in fruit groves. He would drop me off whole, all Saturday to cut down vines under the trees in these fruit groves. Let me tell you something. When the trees are blooming with fruit, do you know that or not? Can you see it? Or is that like a mystery to you? It's everywhere. It's fallen on the ground. You step in it. It can be pretty gross. I'm not going to lie. And not only can you see it, but, you know, I mean, if you, if you own the grove, you can pick it. You can eat it. It's life to you. It's not hidden. Okay, so the blessed man is like a tree, and he's planted by streams of water. There is an unending watering of this tree. He doesn't go dry. And as a result, he yields its fruit, which is open and obvious and sustains. It brings life to others. He yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers, but the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff. Now, what's that? See, these people understood all of this stuff. They were an agricultural society. They would cut the wheat down, and they would beat the wheat. Now, why would they beat the wheat? Because there's this, these dry husks in which the kernels, which are life, that's what you want, were contained, and they would beat these wheat, the wheat, if you will, to break away these dead, worthless husks that they wanted to be rid of, and they would take all of that mess and throw it up into the air on a threshing floor located on a high place where it was most windy, and the wind would come and take away the, the husks, the chaff. Well, the kernels fell to the ground, and they would collect them. The wicked are not so, the psalmist says, but they are like that chaff that the wind of God's judgment drives away in the end. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Why? For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He's saying it will end in destruction together with a funeral that ought to look a lot different than yours. It's a different goal. It's a different purpose. It's a fundamentally different worldview. Different, different, different. So about 20 years ago, when I was still an attorney, I was working at a law firm and became friends with one of the lawyers there and his father, who I'd never met, 
passed away. And so they held his funeral, and it was like on a weekday or something, I think, because I, I remember racing there. I'm a hate-to-be-late guy, um, and so it's very stressful to me if I'm late. So I'm unlike a lot of you, apparently. Anyway, um, <laughs> but there are a few of you that I really love. So I'm racing through traffic. I think, you know, I'm coming up 95. I go to the church, and, and it's funny because as I think about it now, it's like a picture. I mean, I can see the inside of this church that I came running in the back door of just in time. And I sat down, and I could take you to like a five-foot radius and go, okay, I was right about here. And I think I could hit the mark because it was really profound, and I didn't anticipate that. I was just going because of my friend. So I sat down. And the memorial service began, and you know, it's clear that this guy was highly competent, uh, that he was a good guy, uh, his family loved him. Um, but here's what I learned. More than anything else, I learned that he was a really great engineer. And, and I learned that because everybody who got up to talk about him, uh, including his two sons, mostly spoke about that. And so they talked about the buildings that he had done. In fact, he had engineered the church that the service was in. He'd, he had no affiliation with the church, but they let him have it because he was the engineer for the church. He did this building. 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 It was impressive. It really was. And then the pastor got up, and he obviously did not know the man who had died. And he said some words, and I don't remember what else, and then we sang a hymn or something, and then that was the end of it. And because I came a come by myself. You know, I drove back to the office by myself slowly, which is also unusual. And I thought, wow, that's it. That's it. You know, I thought if this man was going to be the guest speaker at a convention for engineers, he's going to like lead a seminar on how to be a really awesome engineer. And if I was an engineer... And then I heard all of that. I think it was long for an introduction. We need a bathroom break. But I'm excited now to hear whatever it is that this guy has to say. He is an awesome engineer. That's clear. That's obvious. That's evident. But that's not what it was. It was the summation of his life. Okay, so now I want you to compare that to a memorial service that most of us at least went to this past February. I'm going to read to you what it said on the bulletin. A service of worship of Almighty God and witness to the resurrection and in gratitude to God for the life of Dr. David McGregor Ingram. That too made an impression on me. Pastor, husband, brother, son, father, confidant, friend. And I was one of the people who had the privilege of speaking at that memorial service, and, um, and that too is photographic. One of the things I said about Dave was that I saw the fruit of the Spirit in him. Now wait, there's that word fruit again. Fruit you see, don't you? It hangs off every branch. I mean, really, like, it hangs off every branch. Trust me, I've picked it. I saw the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? The Spirit of who? The Spirit of the Lord. 
It's the nature of Christ. It's the character of Jesus. When, you know, when the Bible talks about you being conformed to the image of Jesus, it doesn't mean, you know, clothe yourself in a white robe, grow a big beard, put on sandals, and say verily, verily a lot. That's not the point. The point is in your heart, in your mind, and then as it manifests itself as fruit in your life, that's the trajectory. That's the goal. That's success. So anyway, I said, okay, here's the deal. Imagine Dave, you all know him. I'm just going to call him out. You tell me if they fit. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. And self-control. Four weeks after that, as I would see somebody for the first time since they attended, people would come to me and say, man, you know, when you said, hey, here's Dave and here are the fruit of the Spirit, I thought, you got it. That's it. There it is. That's Dave. But the point is, that's Jesus. That's the work that by His Spirit and to His credit to His glory. He wants to do in every one of us. And that's true success. And you say, well, that's great, you know, but how does that happen? I mean, how do I begin to live today in such a way as to make the vision of that reality a reality in my life? And the answer to that, I think, is committed active participation in what I've been calling now several times the rhythm of grace that the Spirit of God then uses to form and to shape and to mold this image, this nature, this character of Jesus inside of me and inside of you and in such a way that it starts, we start sprouting branches, man, like fruit starts coming out of us. It, you know, and you don't have to work to produce fruit, by the way. Like the, the tree who's the orange tree doesn't go, boom, there's another orange. You know, it just... It just happens. It's an orange tree. It's organic. And so it is when the Spirit of the Lord is operating in this rhythm of grace in our lives. And so then the obvious question is, well, then what is that? It's the rhythm or pattern of the gospel, which if you think about it, if you're familiar at least with what we do here at Rio, informs, well, pretty much everything that we ask you to engage in. So I've mentioned personal worship several times. What is that even about? Like, what is that? Personal worship, and you need to go to the website to read all about it, but it's a way of working through the Scriptures and engaging them, but according to this rhythm of grace. So it's taking the passage of Scripture that, yes, we'll look at the next Sunday, and it's beginning on the Monday before, and it's coming and reading through thoughtfully, prayerfully, reflectively, meditatively with a pen and a pad in front of you, even if you don't know what to say or do with it. Writing down what you think the Lord is showing you and all of these things, but according to this pattern, it's to remember God. What does that mean? Just to remember that He exists? Well, it's a good starting point. You know, yes, yeah, start with that. But no, it's to look at this passage of Scripture and say, who is this God who exists? What is he like? What is his heart? What is his mind? What do I see of his goodness and of his grace and of all of these different aspects that is him? And it's interacting with that. And then it's getting up the next day and saying, all right, I'm going to be honest with God about myself. Now, why do I need to do that? Because when I see him for who he is, I see me for who I am and the blazing light of his holiness. 
exposes things in me that the truth of the matter is I can't undo. I can't go back in time and not do them. (laughs) I can't flip back in the book of my life and wipe them out, erase them. I can't do enough good things to outweigh them. I'm done. I've got nothing. In myself, I have no resources to deal with the things that I've said, the things that I've done, the things that I've thought or maybe didn't say, do, or think. And neither do you. And so I bring those things to the only one who can cure them, to the only one who can clean them, to the only one who can heal them, and that is the very God who has exposed them within me by His Spirit and through His Word. And then what do I do? Day three I get up, having been honest with Him, and now I rest in His grace. And what does that mean? I claim that Jesus as the cure to the trauma of, oh, wow, look at me. And I claim his perfect life lived on my behalf. And I claim his sufferings and death of infinite value and his precious blood for every single one of my sins, past, present, and even into the future. I claim that because of him, undeserving me, okay, like I'm a child of the king. That's who I am. And I'm clothed in his righteousness. And when God looks at me, he doesn't see all the filth. All he sees are the beauties of the Lord himself. My goodness, what a treasure that is. I reflect on that. And that springs forth joy and thanksgiving. All kinds of things. And the next day, what do I do? I get up and then I receive his instruction. You see, I'm just working through the same text. And now I'm saying, not God, what does this say? But God, what does this say to me? Because I've been in it all week. And you're not just my Savior, you're my King. Jesus doesn't come to us and say, okay, I can be Savior or King, or I can be both. What's your choice? He's a composite whole. He comes and says, I'm the Savior King. And here's the deal. When you receive my grace, you become mine. And that's not something to be threatened by. That's something to rejoice in. That is a place of safety and freedom of health, of life, of wisdom, of blessing. God, give me your instruction. What are you saying to me in this? Day five, do what he says. How do I do what he says? By the power of his spirit and in conjunction with the community of people that he has put into my life who are seeking, like me, to grow in a relationship with Christ and in his likeness. That's the rhythm of grace. It's what we do on Sunday mornings. Like we don't get up on Sunday mornings typically and go, okay, now that we've all gathered, we're going to remember God. No, we just do a call to worship and a song that goes, holy cow, would you please look at the Lord? He is unbelievable. And then Matt gets up and he doesn't say, all right, now we're going to be honest with God about ourselves. I mean, sometimes he does because we want you to see it's the same pattern. But what does he pray? A prayer of confession. And then what do we do? We sing songs like Blessed Assurance. It's all there. The blessed assurance, this joy, this thanksgiving, this even generosity, we take up an offering. It's all of it flowing out of a heart that's been made washed and clean and new in Christ. And then what do we do? We receive his instruction, all of us, me first. And then Matt gets up at the end and says, now go forth. And in some sense, he's saying, do what he says. What did he say to you? Go do that. Here's some other opportunities to do. And go with his blessing. You see how it works? It's amazing. And what we're going to discover together this year 
is that the rhythm of the year reflects the rhythm of the grace as well. So this year, which by the way, the Christian year begins with Advent, not January 1, next Sunday. That's when it begins. The Christian year begins then. And this year, we're going to be more intentional and more purposeful than ever about emphasizing what the Christian year emphasizes, about even incorporating into what we do some of the traditions and services of the ancient Christian church that the Spirit of God led the church into in years past and that speaks His gospel throughout the course of the entire year. And so then through the rhythm of grace, God is coming and He is comprehending our every one of our individual days. He is comprehending every one of our weeks. He is comprehending every one of our years. And as He does that, He is ingraining that rhythm of grace upon our hearts and upon our minds so that when tragedy does strike in our life or we have a big decision to make or there's some really amazing thing that's made us incredibly joyful, highs, lows, no matter what it is, something that we have to deal with in life, our impulse becomes this rhythm. We begin then to see it in light of who God is. Lord, I need to remember you and who you are as I process this. Not only that, but I need to be honest with you about myself as I process this. Oh, and I need to remember and rest in your assurance of who I am as a child of the King, clothed in your righteousness, blessed in you. I need to receive my marching orders from you, God, because as I've been reminded every day and every week and all the way through this year, you're not just my Savior, you're my King. And your word is life and wisdom and blessing. You're the only one who knows everything. And therefore, the only one who knows anything. Now, O God, by the power of your Spirit, surrounded by the people that you've given me to walk through this life with, let me now go forth and do what you've said. That's the way it works. And that's the rhythm of grace. So now... With that in mind, I want to challenge you to do four things. Number one, go to the website this afternoon if you haven't done it and look at personal worship. Print it out so you have it in your hand and sign up to get the email. I'm going to tell you at 12.01 a.m. tomorrow morning, if you do that, you should receive an email which is going to tell you that starting tomorrow morning, we are going to begin a study of the life of Jesus, the one who our lives are to be conformed to as we find it in the book of Luke. Do that and then start. Number two, commit to gathering here on Sunday mornings. And I wrote in here, you're going to love this, without fail, okay? Now, I realize occasionally you're going to fail. One of your kids is going to throw up on the way or, you know, I mean, I just, I know how this works. I, I do. You're out of town. Like, I get it, okay? I'm not being militant, but I am saying that a lot of us, for a lot of us, what we do here on Sunday mornings is something that we fit in our schedule if it fits in our schedule. And what I'm saying is, no, make everything else in your schedule fit around it. This is God's day, guys. And he's not unclear about that. He claims it. And it's for things like this that he takes and uses profoundly to change everything about you. All right, thirdly, plug into a community group. They typically stop for the month of December. So now's actually a good time to sign up. And lastly... Be open to what the Lord is doing here at Rio as we begin to reintroduce some traditions. As we begin to reach in to the wisdom of the ancient church and to say, yeah, 
How could the Spirit use this to form Christ in us through the same rhythm of grace that we work through daily and weekly as we now work it through annually? And may we all get to the end of our lives and be able to have at least somebody get up and say, hey, you know what? Not perfectly. Good grief. But there were ways in which that person reminded me of Christ. Like, there were fruit on that branches, man. We, we saw that. We, we experienced that. We partook of that. And that was life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Um, for it is indeed life to us. It is wisdom. It is blessing as we receive it, Lord. And by faith, as we put it into practice in our lives and are made free, God, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to look at our lives from the end to now. Lord, what are we living for? Who are we living for? And Father, is it reflective of the pursuit of Jesus? Lord, awaken with us a desire to live well, in the few days that we have, to pursue the Savior daily and weekly and annually, God, through the rhythm of grace that you have graciously created and given to us, by which you communicate with us, by which you shape us and mold us and comfort us and speak to us, by which we walk alongside of you, by which we come to know you, and in some senses reflect you. Lord, I pray that you would impress these things upon us and not let us fall back into the world and have it all just swallowed up and go away. But instead, I pray that you would orient us toward our Savior and toward our King, that we might live for His glory and bear a lot of fruit. Do these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.